Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Our mystery tonight is also a heartbreaker. We're talking four bodies, and nobody brought to justice in 30 years. So throw another log on the fire and settle in, campers. We're going to take you back to 1987 and a season that had an entire community looking over its collective shoulder. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years researching these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hey, everybody. So, Paula, four bodies. Talking about a serial killer here? You know, they don't think so. They had a a task force stick with this uh, situation for a long time. And in the end, they, they think this was the work of at least three different killers, um, but still, collectively, they are probably the most profound cold case in the Akron area. And I'm going to tell you why. So these murders happened in the final five months of 1987. They were four women, all average middle-class moms, wives, daughters, killed doing absolutely routine activities. Now, these weren't women in high-risk neighborhoods or involved in high-risk activities like drugs or prostitutions. They were playing bingo, jogging, shopping, going out with friends. Uh, Three of them were sexually assaulted before they were killed. You can imagine how having a cluster of, of these events happening so quickly just put a whole community on edge. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, you know, Summer of Sam, you know, where, uh, um, you know, Son of Sam was running around New York and had the whole place terrified. Right. And I think, you know, one of the, the things that frightened the community most was people could see themselves in the shoes of these women. Like I said, you know, if you have a... You know, a prostitute killed or somebody who's killed involved with drugs. You know, it's horrible. It's, it's terrible. But people don't react the same way because they don't see themselves. They're like, well, I don't do those kinds of things, so it's not likely to happen to me. But right. everybody plays bingo. Everybody goes Christmas shopping. Everybody goes to a concert with their friends. Exactly. I mean, in New York, you had, uh, you know, women changing their hairstyle because they were afraid, you know, that he was just targeting a certain hairstyle. Exactly. And you don't want to be in that situation. But how do you stop being in a situation? Of everyday normal things. Exactly. 
I mean, there were groups were starting to hold self-defense classes. You know, husbands and fathers were accompanying their wives and daughters on everyday errands. Um, there were news reports that pe- pepper spray sales were sky high, and and husbands were calling to find out what were the best kinds of guns to buy their women. And huh. you know, even one of the women that was eventually killed, she had even mentioned to her family that she was taking extra precautions, although ultimately it did her no good. And yet. In spite of the fact that all of these horrific crimes happened in the northern half of Summit County, one right after another, a law enforcement task force, like I said, formed to solve these murders, concluded they likely weren't related at all, that it was just a coincidence. That's hard to believe, especially since we're talking about, you know, three sexual assaults as well. It was, it, when, I think when I get through the details of these murders, I think you're going to see some similarities uh, and two of them, but I think the others, I, I think you might end up seeing why detectives concluded what they did. Okay. Um, and yet, even if they were all completely unrelated, 31 years later, not a single one of those cases has been closed. That's crazy. Yeah. That's, I, you're not talking about, you know, the 60s and 70s here. You're talking about 1987. 1987. Where were you in 1987? Uh, around this time, the end of the year, I was living in Arizona. Okay, so you probably don't even remember this, and you probably were really young, yeah, too. Yeah, I was going into sixth grade. Yeah, so you, you certainly missed the, you know, the, the gist of what was happening here in, in town. But, you know, in the end, police didn't even come close to arresting anyone in these four cases. It's just tragedy upon tragedy. Well, looks like we got a lot of story to cover. So where does this start? So that would be August 10, 1987. So let me get you in the mood here. You know, the sun is finally peeking through the clouds after a weekend of really hard rain and flooding. Um, Akron is welcoming the young derby enthusiast to town for the 50th anniversary of the All-American Soapbox Derby. 50th anniversary in 1987. That did you ever want to be, did you ever want to do the Derby? No. No. No, I was into baseball, you know, I really didn't know how big Akron was with the Derby scene because we were from Akron. Like, we can look up in the sky and see the Goodyear blimp, you know, where yeah. a lot of cities, you know, you cannot. Right. You know? And we get to see it almost every day in, but was, in good was, weather. <laughs> right. But I was watching a, a, you know, a Leave it to Beaver episode when I was uh, a little bit older, and they were talking about the Akron, you know, Soapbox Derby. And I was like, wow, I guess we are, you know, pretty important. It was, it's, it's a grand affair, and it, it would last the whole week. And so it's a, it's a Monday. I think that's the, even the day that they have the big parade, all the, the Derby kids uh, get get to do this big parade. Big they have deal. a grand marshal. It's a very big deal. And but you know, on this day um, in Cuyahoga Falls, uh, Janice Christensen has other plans. She's thirty one years old. Um, she's a fitness enthusiast. And on this day, she's lacing up her running shoes. Uh, she pulls her orange Toyota Tercel out of her driveway. Yeah, there's an old car. <laughs> and she heads for a quick jog on the. Summit Metro Park's bike and hike trail in Hudson before um, going on a planned luncheon with her mom. Hudson, okay. Uh, yeah, Hudson. It's a affluent very, place, yeah. very nice. Uh, you very know, nice. a hike and bike trail, not the kind of, you know, uh, it's day, not the kind of place, like I said, where you feel like you're really putting yourself at risk. 
And Janice, she's settling into some changes to her life. Her and her husband, Ken, had managed to come through some trying marital difficulties, and they were getting ready to move to Florida. Uh, Janice had cut back on her hours as a computer operator at Cuyahoga Falls General Hospital so she could spend more time with her family before leaving. And uh, being a physical fitness enthusiast, she always used her extra time to do the things she loved, uh, horseback riding, gardening, bodybuilding, and of course, running. And on many of her runs, Janice would take her 70-pound dog, Wolf, with her. That's a big dog. That is a huge dog. And that would be really nice to have him on the trail with you. But gosh, on this day, she didn't take him. Hmm. Um, she's alone, and alone that is, until she meets her killer on the trail. Now, when Janice doesn't keep her lunch appointment with her mom, the family starts to worry. It was so uncharacteristic of her to do something like that. When her husband, Ken, gets home from work that afternoon, the family calls the police, and the family's not even waiting. They're already starting their, their search plans. They're coming up with a a grid. They've, they've got plans to start looking for her. Um, and that night, Ken Christensen, he's waiting for morning to come so they can put their plan into to play. He can't sleep. He's tossing and turning. And when he finally dozes off, he dreams that his wife has fallen. So he rises at the crack of dawn, grabs a flashlight and a blanket, gets Wolf in the car, and they head to the park. And so he's walking along the trail, calling his wife's name, and Wolf suddenly stops in an area that's filled with brush, and he's acting strange. Uh Yeah. Well, Ken, I mean, Ken himself, he's afraid to look at first. That'd be terrifying. There would be. I mean, it's, oh, I can't even imagine this moment for him. But finally, he follows Wolf's lead, and there she is. She's under some brush. She's lying still. There's blood on her T-shirt. He reach out, reaches out and touches her arm. It's cold. Um, the coroner would later conclude that she'd been raped and stabbed to death at about 10 a.m. the day before. Wow, that's, that's pretty rare, right in, right in the morning daylight. Yeah, like I said, I mean, the, the park trails around Summit County are so well used. People love their parks and their park trails around here, and... Gosh, I go running all the time, and I, it never occurs to me that it's not going to be safe for me to do that. Well, I, my question was, you know, back then in 1987, how well were they used? But to come think of it, there was not that many, so that one had to have been, you know, used. Um, yeah, well, that's a good point. I right. think of the the large part of the, maybe all of the towpath trail hadn't been in use yet, right. so, yeah. And running was still, you know, it was a big deal. You know, running became a a trend in the late 70s, and there were a lot of runners in the Akron area. But, man, apparently the the killer had the privacy to do what he wanted to do. And so Janice, she's gone. Um, Newspapers print the stories about it. And while police are investigating, we're going to move ahead to October 21, 1987. Okay, so we've gone from, what is this, August? Yeah, we've gone from August 10 up to October 21. Okay. And winter uh, has settled in early. The overnight temperatures are dipping into the 30s. That's pretty low for that time of year. It is. It could be. Well, it's northeast Ohio. Yeah, you never know. (laughs) I've seen it snow that late in October. Oh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. 
Um, the headlines on the evening news are about President Reagan's proposal to raise taxes, and the Cleveland Indians fans are fretting over the potential trades of Julio Franco, Corey Snyder, and Joe Carter. You remember those uh, guys? Yes, and I think Julio Franco might still be playing. No, I'm kidding, but he, <laughs> he played forever. I, I, Did he? Yes. Yeah, I believe he ended up like retiring from professional, not major league baseball, but professional baseball probably about five years ago. Oh, That's how long he no played. No way. He played for a very long oh, time. Oh, my gosh. Wow, he must have been fit. Yep. I, I, whenever I do a historical story, I love to remember like what was going on at the time. Yeah. It really kind of puts me back there. And I go, and, oh, I remember that period. Yeah, Julio so. Franco stood out, too, because he had a weird batting stance, you know, had the bat over his head, like, you know, and, well... <laughs> My my listeners well, can't see they it. They can't, but I can see, and I'm telling you, that okay. was a weird stance. That was a weird so stance. So I'll, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'll back you up on that. <laughs> so anyway, it's uh, it's evening, and uh, 47-year-old Joanne Bartholomew, she asks her husband Chuck if he wants to attend the late service at the First Church of God in Talmadge. That's the same church where she was baptized and where they were married. Uh, But the Bartholomews owned a Dairy Queen in Cuyahoga Falls, and they were completing a new store in Medina. And they agreed if he skipped the service, he could get some additional drywall put up. Okay. So Joanne goes to the service by herself. It's about 8 p.m. And uh, after the service is done, she slips into her Cadillac Coupe de Ville and leaves the church parking lot. Now, apparently, she decides to do some impromptu Christmas shopping at O'Neill's, which is having a late-night sale at Chapel Hill Mall. And she's seen at the store looking over some VCRs. Then she leaves the store. So Chuck comes home at 9.30, and he's not alarmed to see that Joanne's not home. So she's probably done this type of stuff before. Yeah, you know, she was at church, plenty of reason to linger afterward and, you know, catch up with what's going on. And so, you know, he settles into the the living room sofa. He watches the Minnesota Twins playing the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series. And uh, he dozes off. So about midnight, his youngest son, Tom, wakes him up and says, hey, where's mom? And he says, well, what do you mean? Where is she? And he says, well, her car's not in the garage. So they go and check, and sure enough, it's not there. Joanne's nowhere in the house. So Chuck uh, does what any husband would do. Frantically, he jumps into his own car, and he starts retracing the route between their home in Stowe and the church in Talmadge. I like to say Talmadge, but people always correct me. So for our <laughs> listeners, I'll call it Talmadge. I always call it Talmadge. Where'd you get Talmadge from? I don't know. <laughs> the first syllable is tall. Okay. Okay, so it's Talmadge. Sure. In your world. <laughs> but uh, he, he didn't know about Joanne's impromptu stop at O'Neill. So while he's driving right past Chapel Hill, he drives past it five times that night. He never thinks to glance in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. He's, he's busy looking in the ditches and, you know, where else could she be? So when he finally returns home, the sun is coming up. He's been looking since midnight. Oh, okay, yeah. And so he calls the police. Um, so while the police are investigating, Chuck and, and his son Tom, they resume their own search. That's what families do. And this time they spot her car near the mall's main entrance on Britain Road. So apparently... When she came out from shopping at O'Neill's, she never got into her car. 
So Chuck calls the police, and they arrive, and they ask him to open the trunk. Boy, that's that's got to be a hard request. Um, the trunk is empty. Ugh. So had me in suspense there. I know, I know, I know. But you know, there's good and bad. The good is she wasn't in the trunk. The bad is she's still missing, and her car's right there. So over the next two days, the family and friends. Uh, of Joanne Bartholomew, they join the hunt. They are combing the area around Chapel Hill on foot. And on Saturday, so this is 72 hours after she's disappeared, she's discovered. Her partially nude body is found in a wooded area behind one of the stores near the mall. And she's been raped and stabbed to death. Um, So now there are some investigators who would come to think these two deaths might have been the work of the same person because... They're very similar. They are close in proximity, and uh, you've got both women raped, both killed the same way by being stabbed. And, you know, even though the the police wouldn't say that publicly, residents are drawing this conclusion. And so all of a sudden you got this idea that a serial killer may be on the loose. Exactly. And like they said, Hudson is not that far away from Chapel Hill. It's just a you know, five, ten-minute drive. So Exactly. Well, that's about when that fear starts to kick in community-wide. So now we're going to move ahead a few more weeks to Monday, December 14. So we're going from October 21 to December 14. Okay. And Marsha K. Potter, she's 36. Uh, She works for a dentist. She's been married to her husband, Larry, for five years, and she's mom to two kids from previous marriages. And she prides herself on her well-decorated home in West Akron. Marsha is the one. She's so alarmed by the Christensen and Bartholomew murders that she's urging her friends and family to take precautions. She even told them that she makes a point of double-checking that her own car doors are locked each time she travels and tells people, you do the same. And she did just that. It was 10.30 p.m. that evening. She had been out playing bingo at St. Martha's Catholic Church with her parents. They escorted her to her car, made sure she was tucked safely inside, saw her double-check those locks, and then she drives off. Well, early the next morning, Larry Potter wakes up to realize his wife had never come home. So he starts calling family and friends, and then eventually the police. And then, as with the other two cases, the family heads out in the snow and slush to search for their loved one. And at 1 a.m. Wednesday morning, Marcia's parents receive a call from the police. Marcia has been found. So residents at an apartment complex off North Pershing Avenue Uh, That's in West Akron, not far from where she lived. They had spotted Marsha's car in the parking lot, and Marsha was lying on the seat, stabbed to death. She was just six blocks from home. So unlike the other two victims, she hadn't been raped. That wasn't clear in the first news report, so the public is all of, you know, definitely, oh, my God, now we've got three women. Now we have three on our hands, and we're Um, still not that far apart. Right, right. Still all connecting communities. 
So the the YWCA Rape Crisis Center is telling the newspaper at that time that they've received a 700% increase in calls to their center. Women are asking how to defend themselves. And like I said, husbands are calling them. What kind of gun should I get my wife? 700%. 700%. I mean, women are, are really starting to fear what's going on. And of course, you know, any kind of tragedy like this and gun sales are going to go flying right through the roof. And this is a, a challenge for law enforcement because this is crossing boundaries. You've got... You know, a woman who's killed in Hudson or found in Hudson. You've got a woman who's found in West Akron. You've got a woman who left a home in Stowe, went to a place in Talmadge. Was, her body was found in Akron. You've got all these jurisdictions crossed. So the law enforcement community comes together and they say, we've got to put together a task force and investigate these together. So a, a lot of people in law enforcement very quickly think that Marsha K. Potter, it's not sounding like the other cases. First of all, she hasn't been raped. Um, Second, even though she was stabbed, she was stabbed in a car where she was securely locked in, knowing not to open that door to strangers. So they started thinking that she might have been killed by someone she knew. Okay. And I believe they came up with a suspect, although they would never generate enough evidence to justify an arrest or name that suspect. Okay. Um, but they do not think that she was connected to those other two. The public doesn't care. You've got three dead women. As far as they're concerned, there's a serial killer on the loose. So they're talking about a family member, a close family member maybe. Or friend, but okay. somebody, somebody who knew her. Okay. Yeah. So we don't have to wait that long for the fourth body. It happens just five days later. Wow. So now we're up to Saturday, December 19. And a Barbara Blatnick, uh, she had intended to party the night away. She was a 17-year-old girl from Garfield Heights. She might not even known about the other murders. She lived 30 miles from where everything else was happening. And she's a teenager. She's probably not paying attention to the news and... If she had, she might not have imagined herself a likely target. Those other women were, you know, old enough to be her mother or, or nearly so. Bladnick, she was a, a junior at Cleveland's Erie View Catholic High School. Uh, she loved heavy metal music and dancing, and she had lots and lots of friends. And she was going to enjoy all three of these things at a party on Turney Road, not far from the home where she shared with her parents and sister. So Barbara says goodbye to her family about 4 p.m. She promises her mom she'll finish her chores the next day. And she makes it to the party, okay? She has a few drinks, and she calls her dad at 10.30 that night to say she's going to be home shortly. Now, Barbara's mom, she's curled up on the couch waiting for her daughter, but as the minutes pass by, she dozes off. And just as Christensen had a fevered dream about his wife, Terry Blatnick uh, told a reporter about a dream she had that night of her daughter. And she said, and I'll quote her here, I knew when Barbie died, she's telling oh. this to a Beacon Journal reporter, I watched her go through a tunnel of bright light. And in that dream, Barbara told her mother, I love you, Ma, but I have to go. So Terry Blatnick wakes up the next day, and she tells the rest of her family she had this dream. 
And so they start calling friends to find out where Barbara is because she's not at the house. Nobody's got a clue to where the, the pretty blonde is. And by Sunday afternoon, her dad decided, okay, the, the, no more. We've got to bring in the police quickly. And so they go to report his daughter missing, but he didn't even get to make that call. Before he can pick up the phone, two police officers are knocking on his door. Wow. Uh, they believed they had found his youngest daughter, and they needed someone to come with them to identify the body. So turns out, 10 o'clock that morning, uh, the girl had been found by an oil and gas worker in a wooded area off O'Neill Road that's near Blossom Music Oh, Center. we're down here in our area again. Uh, yep, yep, so that would be uh, the Cuyahoga Falls area. Yeah, so she's probably she's probably 20 miles from where she lived. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem to me like, you know, I mean, she was up not far from her home, and she was telling her parents she would be home shortly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she didn't have any plans to come down into Summit County. But... She had been raped and strangled, not stabbed like the others. Right. And the only article on her body was a class ring with Barbara's name engraved inside. And I think that was the one clue that helped lead to her family, to getting her family. Police quickly concluded her death was not related to the others. I don't know what other evidence they had, but they really thought this was a third killer now. Let's go back to uh, this August 10th, okay? Okay. And we're talking about Janice Christensen, and uh, they is there any motive to this? Is there Was she robbed, do you know of? Was there um, any kind of weapon found? Uh, there was no weapon found, and it looked like just a crime of opportunity. Like okay. somebody was laying in wait. I don't think they ever so the concluded was she was stalked assault. or anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Exactly. All right. So we're we're going from August tenth and now October twenty first. Right. And this one is Joanne, and she is older than the Janice. So. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Janice was in her thirties. She's in her forties. Okay. Now she was shopping. You know, I I don't think that they thought of robbery as the motive. She probably had some money on her, but again, she's found partially nude and and dead, so it seemed like the motive was probably sexual assault. Okay, and uh, there was no report, of course, of her being robbed. Like, uh, but She might have been. She might have I'd been. be okay. very surprised if they didn't help her themselves but to what, her. What's interesting is they said that her car was found near the entrance of the mall. Right. And that, you know... That's a pretty busy mall. It's hard to believe she would. It is, but walk you know that. that is winter. Eight p.m. is dark. Ah, uh, that's true. And if somebody's laying in wait, uh, they can probably move pretty quickly. I mean, she certainly isn't the first person to have been abducted from a mall. Right. I mean, um, that, so around yeah. that time, it's probably getting dark about seven thirty. So. Yeah. Well, actually, in December, it was probably dark oh, by 5 or 6. Well, this was October 21st. Oh, October. Correct. Oh, you're right. Yes. Well, and since I have that Halloween party, I know exactly when it gets dark. When does it get dark? It gets dark around 6.30. Oh, okay. I didn't realize so, it got yes, dark. Yes, there wow. you go. Okay. I plan my party, so the darkness falls just when I want it to. So maybe somebody... <laughs> well, I would, I would, I wouldn't think that somebody would hold a gun to her to make her walk past her car, because... It would have been, you know, a gunshot. Yeah, well, he had a knife, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just what I'm getting at here is maybe she knew her killer as well. 
I don't know. Um, I mean, it seems like it's just odd to me that. I don't know. Was I can't. There any you struggle? know. Struggle was there? I mean, I wish I knew more about the evidence. But of course, the police aren't aren't going to release everything. Yeah. You know. To well, us. I think if somebody knew her, they probably wouldn't go rape her in the woods and leave her there. That's, they would that's true. probably plan that better. Right. Uh, differently, but I don't. Um, it's hard to know how people would react in a certain situation. I've often thought, you know, what would I do if somebody just came up to me in my car with a gun and said, scoot over or I'm going to shoot you? You know, a lot of times they say, don't. If you, somebody gets away with taking you, you're dead. So yeah. fight back, run, say no, step on the gas, you know. So if somebody's coming up you, to you with a knife and says, you know, you're going with me, it's hard to know how people would react differently to I that. I guess so. I mean, I could, it's easy to say, oh, I would have, you know, take a couple of stabs and got, got away. Yeah. Know, but, but you don't know. You don't, you never you know. don't know. Thank so God now, we've never had that happen. Right, exactly. So now we're moving to December 14th. This is another Monday. The other one, the first one, Janice was attacked on a Monday as yes, well. Yes, right. Okay, and this is uh, Marsha K. Potter, and she's back. She's we're going back into you know the thirties again. She's thirty six years old. Right. Okay. okay. Again, there's you know there's mo- this one's the could be a family member or friend because she was scared about the last two murders. Yeah, they. I think they thought it would be really hard for somebody to get in her car because she was so conscious of staying locked in her car until she got home. So how did she not make it home? How was her car open that somebody would stab her? And they also began to wonder if somebody maybe had taken advantage of the news, like if somebody had wanted to kill her, could could I stab her now and get away with it because these other murders are in the news? They'll, right. they'll blame the other guy. But she um, wasn't sexually assaulted. She right? was not, she was which not also helped play into the idea of what, was somebody setting this up to look like somebody else, but it wasn't somebody who really wanted to go to the step of raping her. Yeah, and I'm sure they interviewed and, you know, talked to her husband. That's the, usually the first person that they look to is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the spouse. Yeah, um, absolutely. But uh, obviously they didn't get enough uh, evidence... For anybody. For anybody. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. So now we're just moving just five days later. So, yeah, five days later, you've got this uh, poor girl from Garfield Heights. So last Monday, and that's and then this is the Saturday. Right. And we're talking about a way younger 17-year-old girl. Right, right. Okay. Which is another reason. You know, she was younger than the other ones. She was in a different county. She was, the other three were very close together. This girl was 30 miles away. And she was strangled, not stabbed. But she was assaulted. But she was assaulted, right. Okay. Uh, so they, they think they've got at least three different killers on okay. their hands. That it's just a coincidence that all these and she's, murders happened together. She's dumped in the, um, in the Cuyahoga Valley. Yeah. Metro. Exactly. So she's dumped close to where the other women were killed or found, though she wasn't necessarily killed there because she was from another county. Yeah, exactly. She was in another county. I mean, let's be honest. We've heard of plenty of cases where, you know, bodies are being dumped in that area. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So, 
You know, it's, you know, I, there's really nothing substantial to add. These events happened. The task force was formed to try and solve them. After about a year, they just quietly dissolved, and they never came back and reported anything significant after that. The Beacon Journal revisited the murders in 1997 for the 10th anniversary, and again in 2007 for the 20th anniversary. I was actually involved in the reporting of both of those stories. But all we really had to share was a tale of how the families were trying to cope and move on with their lives. There was absolutely nothing new in any of those cases. And it was, it was interesting to me to see the different ways loved ones were dealing as the years went on without any closure. Terry Blatnick, she told a reporter she actually feared her daughter's killer being caught because she was terrified of seeing his face and of having to learn about the details of her daughter's last moments. Now, that's an interesting trial. take. Usually you want closure, but again, you know, everybody's she, different. Yeah, she didn't want to know. She did not want to know the details. And, and I got a quote from her. She said, I don't hate this person because he's going to pay. I figure when he closes his eyes, how can he help not see her eyes looking up at him? And I have peace with that. So that, that's how she was trying to deal with moving on. Okay. Ken Christensen, Janice Christensen's husband, he was the exact opposite. He was eager to look at his wife's killer in the eyes as he was brought to justice. And for that 1997 story, we found he had moved to Florida, as him and his wife had planned. And he, he used that time to try to kind of bury his pain by working with uh, exotic animals in a wildlife hospital. I think that was part of their, their goal and originally wanting to move down there and at that time, he told us, and here's a quote, the thing is, I don't want to die first before I see him. I can't say what I would like to do to the guy, but I'd like to see him dead. Wow. So that's probably a much more typical reaction. Yes. But, you know, it's... And then Joanne's husband, Chuck, he never gave up hope that some clue or some witness would reveal his wife's killer. And here's a quote from, from Chuck. That was Joanne Bartholomew's uh, husband. He said, when people commit crimes, they have to tell somebody. I can't believe that the person who committed this crime is the only person who knows it. And if the person or persons are found, I have to know what happened that night. I need to know every detail, and I want to know why. Wow. So again, Every detail. Well, you know. It, that's... Again, I, I've never been in that spot, so... No, you know. no, it just, it just goes to show the lack of closure that these families have to live with year after year after year, just always wondering what had happened that night. That's amazing. We have four, uh, four women in such a short time period. And if they're all unrelated, it's wild that they couldn't all be... so. Akron does not have a reputation as a city that can't solve murders. Right. And if you've got four different deaths and none of them were solved, that's wild. That you know, it's is like, wow. Unheard of. Yeah. That's it for now. Be sure to visit our website at ohiomysteries.com where we have our photos, news clippings, videos, links associated with each and every episode. And if you like our podcast, there are a few ways you could support us. First and foremost, please tell your friends and family about us. You can also visit our Facebook page and like us. 
Share our link on your own Facebook as well. And follow us on Twitter. On our website, you'll also find links to our Patreon page, where you can send a little spare change our way. Or go directly to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Ohio Mysteries. For a donation as small as a dollar a month, we'll give you a personal shout-out on a future podcast, as well as our heartfelt thanks. And there are special perks for other tiers on our Patreon. Steve, nobody likes to ask for money, especially us. These podcasts are truly a labor of love. But until we land that major national sponsor, every little bit will help pay the expenses we incur with bringing you these stories each week. So, enough of that. Thanks for joining us this week. And we'll see you next week for another Ohio Mystery. Until then, keep the fire burning and happy camping. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.